Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Sephora, and Nike. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week, we come to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's a Philadelphia native, and he's been, and the last time I saw him was in the green room of CBS this morning when we were both doing the show that day, uh, Derek Pitts from the Franklin Institute. 
what an astronomer you are. <laughs> Thank you, sir. How are you? <laughs> but you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to be devil's advocate for a okay. second. When I think astronomy, I don't think Philadelphia. I think, you know, the, the observatories in other places. Sure. And yet... You've been doing this for 40 years? Yes, I've been doing this here in Philadelphia for, for 40 years at the Franklin Institute Science Museum, which is a public, hands-on science institution where people come to have fun with science. But we have a strong astronomy component there because our planetarium, the Fells Planetarium, is the second oldest planetarium in the United States. And the oldest is? And the oldest is uh, Adler in no. Chicago. Oh, it's not the Hayden. No, Hayden is like third or fourth. Hayden's nothing. Yeah, okay, forget nothing, that. Nothing. Right, 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 right. So, yes, and we also have an observatory a rooftop observatory, which you might think is unusual for a center city location, but it's also been at that location since 1934 at a time when the skies were much darker. When we talk about dark sky locations, Philadelphia doesn't come to mind. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't. But you know, there's a really interesting aspect about that, Peter, which is that in the time that I've been working in the observatory, the majority of people have never looked through a telescope before. So that means our mission, we're meeting our mission right smack dab on the money because we're introducing people to the night sky by allowing them to see all those great and wonderful targets like the moon, Jupiter, Saturn, Venus, Mars. Can can I make an admission here? Sure. I'm sort of in a remedial Big Dipper program. Okay. I mean, every once in a while I go, oh, yeah, I need a lot of help. Okay, okay. Well, we can help you with that. (laughs) (laughs) So we're actually providing this wonderful first-time opportunity for people in a safe learning environment so they don't have to feel intimidated or anything like that. And we always know when people have had a good telescope experience because when they look through the eyepiece, we know they've seen it because they always go, <gasps> and that's how we know they've seen it. It's a remarkable can, can you, view. Can you do that again? What was that? <gasps> okay, thank you. I just want to double check that, that reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I've been practicing that for a while. Is that an astronomy kind of a thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. For some, yes. Yeah, okay. That's right. But first of all, I'm always surprised, as you just said, about how many people who've never looked through a telescope. Yes, that's, right. that's number one. Yep. Then, of course, it's understanding what you're seeing and then interpreting what you're seeing. Exactly. And that's where we really excel because the folks on our staff know how to engage with visitors. And really, to tell you the truth, at first you think it's all about the astronomy content, but really it's about the visitor experience. It's making sure that people have a good experience seeing something through the telescope. Because, trust me, Peter, if they can't see what you say they're supposed to see... It will have no meaning. They don't care about anything else. So that's first and foremost. We make sure they have a good experience at the telescope. So. Check the weather forecast to make sure it's not cloudy in Philadelphia, and then show up at the Franklin. Second Tuesday night of every month, Night Skies at the Observatory is a great way for you to get your first look through a really good telescope in an urban environment. Now, in the 40 years at the, at the Franklin, what's been the biggest surprise or left-hand turn you've experienced in terms of astronomy? You know, I would say the biggest surprise, the biggest left-hand turn I've experienced in astronomy is when the Franklin Institute hosted a very, very special exhibition from the Galileo Museum in Florence, Italy. Now we're going back. Now we're going back. Yeah, this wasn't long ago. This is only about, uh, uh, this was uh, 2010. We hosted... But, but before you even say that, yeah, yeah. let's tell our, our listeners... The perspective of Galileo. Sure, yes. So Galileo, in in 1609, Galileo put together the first telescope that was used for astronomical observing, true astronomical observing. So first it had to work. That's the first thing. Yeah. Yes. And then, what the heck were they looking at? You know, here's what happened with this. There was a telescope in use just before Galileo, but the guy who used it, a guy named James uh, Harriet in England, only used it to observe the moon, and he never recorded any of what he did. Galileo, on the other hand, who was a superb marketer, not only built the telescope <laughs> himself, but also marketed. As seen on TV. As seen on TV. <laughs> just wait, there's more. And what he did was, he not only built the telescope, but his realization of how the solar system was structured came out of his observations, and he published that in a vernacular language for everyone to understand. So that's how he did the really great marketing. He didn't keep it to himself. He let everybody know what he was seeing and helped others understand how the solar system is truly structured. The thing that blew me away, because you also have to have a personal experience to be able to get to that point, was when I was in Mexico, 
in Chichen Itza. Yes. And looking at the Aztecs and what they did. Oh, yes. I mean, the way they had the angle Amazing, of the sun. And they, they had an observatory there. Yeah, they did. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, we can't, we can't discount ancient people's capability to understand the motions of objects in the heavens. You have to realize that they had plenty of time on their hands. They didn't have television, radio, movies, internet, any of those things to distract them. Yeah, as night. opposed to all of my friends who are glued to their phone, these people actually looked up. Yes. How about that? Instead yeah. of looking at the app on the phone, you actually go outside and see something. Isn't yeah. that a twist? Well, the great connection between Galileo's work and what we do at the Franklin Institute in astronomy, giving people a chance to observe, is I ask people to imagine what Galileo's experience must have been like when he first saw Jupiter with its moons orbiting the planet. And this was the realization for him that the solar system is heliocentric, sun-centered rather than Earth-centered. Not he to mention the concept of we are not alone. Not to mention that. Well, that experience of discovery for him, realizing at that point that he's the only person in the world who's ever seen this, well, that's the same experience that our visitors have when they come and they look through the telescope for the first time, too. It's no different from Galileo's first experience. It's a discovery experience for everyone. And of course, at least once a year, I will see a news story that runs across the wires about another moon being discovered, oh gosh, another yes, planet. Yes, another planet, sure. Yeah. There's thousands of them now. I think the number is 3,741 planets have been confirmed orbiting other stars. Okay, well, here's a travel question for you. Yeah. In our lifetime, forgetting those 3,000, we're still talking about going to Mars. They're still training in Utah. Have you bought your one-way ticket yet? <laughs> My one-way ticket. I'm sure someone would like to send you on a one-way ticket to Mars. <laughs> it's, been, it's been offered before. Thank I'm you. sure. No, but in, in all seriousness, the technology of getting us to the moon, which happened in 1969. Yes. Right? That's coming up on 50 years. Mm -hmm. That's right? right. I just saw Next Buzz year. Aldrin the other night. Yeah. He's still alive. He's 88. I know. He's in great shape. Amazing. But that's 50 years ago. Yeah, right? true. How much has that technology you know, basically evolved and improved that we can actually realistically talk about going to another planet. Well, the evolution that's taken place has opened doors to give us access to low Earth orbit like we have never had it before. And this is a tremendous step forward. So now, rather than having national organizations mounting these enormous, costly campaigns to gain access to low Earth orbit, we have much smaller companies doing this. And, of course, everybody knows about SpaceX, yeah. who's been so okay, successful recently, that, right? I, the thing that Didn't blew, that blew me your mind? No, I'll tell you what blew my mind. Which, Not that they launched part? it. Yeah. The, the, the two coming came down. down together. They came down together. Isn't that amazing? This, I, I couldn't do that with a pencil. Yeah, I know. It's, it's crazy. Well, Jeff Bezos from Amazon is doing the same kind of thing, not quite to that degree yet. Yeah. But don't forget that there's also this company we know of as Virgin Galactic, yeah. which is planning to have people travel to space yes, but wait, as just stop, a wait, wait, tourist. Wait, wait a minute. Hold on. We're gonna, when we come back, we're going to talk about that because I have a bone to pick with Virgin Galactic. Oh, really? You know what it is? Because they're talking about going to space. It's, all, it's the monkey from Russia. It's all, you know it, and I know Yes. It's all suborbital for about 18 seconds. You take a photo op, you keep the you keep the uniform, you land, and it costs you $200,000 to be the monkey from Russia. That's true, but you'll be a very special monkey from <laughs> Russia. <laughs> oh, my God. When we're talking about just the technology that can get SpaceX up in the air and have those two rockets come back down and literally land on a dime, that blew me away. And the key of that is reusability. Yeah. Reusability will cut the cost of access to low Earth orbit dramatically, making it easier for commercial entities to access low Earth orbit. That's going to open doors for people to be able to take that visit to low Earth orbit. And eventually, you know, this, the plan of SpaceX is to use advanced technologies, including that usability, to establish colonies on Mars. But in the meantime, they will be able to get colonies on the moon and... Well, that's going to happen first. That that's, has to happen that's first. That's true. But, but but here's something else you'll be interested in, is that plan for the new technology that will allow colonies on the moon and Mars can is also planned to be used to cut travel times around the world down to no more than 45 minutes to get from any one place on the planet to any other place on the planet. So basically, the, not enough time for the airline to abuse you. No, no, you'll have to bring your own snacks because they won't have time to serve everybody. <laughs> 
Can you imagine that? Yeah, I mean, that's that'd be wild. Then, then, then the narrow seats begin to make sense. Yes, they do. It's only forty-five minutes. Anybody can stand that to get to uh, Hong Kong in forty-five minutes. I'll go for that. And you know, and, and that technology, especially in terms of fuel burn, makes sense then. Yes, it really does make a lot of sense. You're carrying much more payload. You're doing it much faster, so it's much more efficient. And it again, it opens the doors to future exploration of near-Earth objects. And until we get to that point, we got to come over to the Franklin Institute and. Uh, Get our hands on the telescope. Yes, you do. We have all kinds of other really great, entertaining science adventures for people at the Franklin Institute also. You know, we have these, uh, it, since we're speaking about technologies like that, let's just go back a couple of decades. We also have a locomotive from the late 1920s. It was an experimental locomotive built by the Baldwin Locomotive Works, and it's right inside the building. This locomotive, number 60,000, weighs 350 tons, and it's a really great example of what locomotive technology was like in the early 1930s. Well, the en- if you take a look at those locomotives from then, the engineering alone was staggering. It was truly amazing. And this was an experimental one, which is the really cool part. They were actually trying out new technologies it was a to improve the car. efficiency. It was. Yeah. It was. And they would build a, quote-unquote, concept car, concept train. Now, if that was the 1930s, was that steam or was it diesel? No, it was steam. It yes, was steam. it was steam and it was coal-driven, actually, also. Oh, our current president would like that. Yes, he would love that. And you can actually, you know, I've been able to find some of the coal left over in what are called the automatic stokers in this thing from the time that it really ran over 100,000 miles of track and it ran over 120 miles an hour. This was an amazing beast. Think about that. It ran 120 miles an hour, and now it's the year 2018, and we still don't have high-speed rail in America. Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah, I'm still looking for my flying car. That's where we should it's be now. It's George Jetson. <laughs> you got it. That's dog. Right. Elroy. Elroy. Is it Elmo or Elroy? Elroy. El- oh, the, no, the uh, Astro. The Astro. dog is Astro. The boy is Elroy. Okay. Elroy. Yes. <laughs> I got people chiming in all over the place get it here. together here. I love we? it. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the bottom line is, you go back to the old school technology, and the real question is, what can we learn from that? Exactly right. And what we attempt to try to do is to help people really understand what these transformative technologies have been like and how they've affected our lives. Not only do we have the locomotive, but we also have an original Wright B, uh, Wright Brothers Model B flyer, one of the earliest ones that they factory produced that was owned by someone in the Delaware Valley back in the 1920s. And that's a part of our technolo- technology collection at Franklin Institute. But we also have uh, flight simulators and we have all of our, our space, you know, either memorabilia or uh, planetarium and observatory, all those kinds of things to help connect the dots for people and help them understand the importance of these transformations in technology. I mean, when you can understand the process, that's the only time you can value the product. Well, this is incredibly important, actually, Peter, because in our world today, there are so many issues that we really need to deal with through science. The only way that our public can effectively understand and deal with them is that if they understand the basic science. And that's an important responsibility we have is to help people understand that. So we try to be non-controversial. When we look at any of these hot-button issues, but we try to give people the information they need so that they can understand the background and then act accordingly. Now, if you failed science in high school, as maybe one of us did... We're the place to come to. Okay, you good. cannot fail museum. And we really, make it, uh, we really make it an important piece of what we do to make sure that we engage people in a way that's non-threatening and that there are many ways for people to access the information that's comfortable for them. Because at the bottom, what we want is for people to not be afraid of science, to open up their curiosity about science, no matter where they are in this, whether they think they like it or not. And then to connect the dots. And then connect the dots. That's the, well, you connect the dots for me all the time, My Derek pleasure. Pitts. I'm so glad. Yeah, you got it. Sputnik monkey for you. That's it. That's it. <laughs> We'd all like to be a Sputnik monkey, actually. Do you know anybody who wouldn't want to go to space? Wait a second. Did you ever ask the Sputnik monkey how the Sputnik monkey felt? Uh, that would be a different. That would be a different <laughs> answer, I'm sure. Yeah, ask him where he is today. <laughs> Every time I come to Philadelphia, I literally move in and hang out at my next guest's location. Uh, he's starting to laugh at me because he knows about 
where he lives and where he works. Uh, it's not just an institution. It's uh, it's sort of like the mecca for foodies here for me. If you really want great Philadelphia food from every location in the city, plus Pennsylvania in, in particular, you go to the Reading Terminal. And it's endless, and it's always crowded, and I always end up buying about nine things more than I ever need. And I came home, and I come home, and I go, "Did I really buy all that?" And then, of course, you know what I do next? I eat it. The general manager of the Reading Terminal Market, uh, Anuj Gupta, I got that name right. Thank you. Yes. How long? How old is that terminal? Well, we just marked our 125th anniversary on February 22nd. One of the largest and oldest operating public markets in America, and it's indoors. <clears throat> yes, which means right. that you smell everything. You want the cheesesteaks, you got them. You want you want the uh, the pretzels, you got them. You want the chocolate, there's chocolate. That Absolutely, everything. It, it's a uh, it's a panoply of sights, sounds, smells. It's an experience every time you walk through our doors. How many different vendors are in there right now? We have about eighty, and these are all unique family owned businesses uh, from the Philadelphia area. Right, and when you say family owned, we're not talking chain stores here. We're no. talking all. Individual-owned family market deals. Yeah, as a matter of policy, we actually don't allow chains or franchises in the building. We have a heavy emphasis on what we call the owner-operator model of business. The person that you bought the sausage from is also the person that likely made it. You know, that's interesting because my favorite farmer's market is Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. I mean, they surround the Capitol every Saturday and Sunday, even in the coldest days. Mm -hmm. But they have a rule like you do. If you're going to exhibit there, if you're going to display there... It's got to be the guy who made it, right? You're not talking to his representative, or you're not talking to some agent or third-party distributor. The guy who made the cheese is the guy who's selling the cheese. The guy who who grew the the pineapple, not the pineapple in Madison, Wisconsin, but the pumpkin, is there. The we have fought very hard to maintain this owner-operator criteria for the businesses that come into the Reading Terminal, in part because that defines the the character, the unique nature of of the institution when you walk in. For our regular shoppers, for example, people that come to buy their meats and produce and seafood, they have a direct relationship with the butcher. On a first-name basis. On a first-name basis. The butcher knows their family, knows their children, knows their preferences. Um, Our produce vendors know what to recommend to our loyal customers. And it's it's a very tight-knit community. And from all the times I've gone there, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you have very little turnover in vendors. They're there. We we do that's correct. I mean we've had we have one vendor, the oldest ice cream company in America, Bassett's, which is still in the same space they were in in 1893 when the market opened. And there's still a line there. They even in February. Absolutely, yeah. And they are still a family-owned business on their sixth generation. Right. And pretzels. Pretzels. You <laughs> name it. It's it's a wonderful place to if if you are in Philadelphia for a short time, and you you want to get a taste literally and figuratively, of what this city is all about, the Reading Terminal is the best place to All right. So give me what's going to be on my menu today when I go over there. What should I get if I've never been to Philadelphia and I want to immerse myself in the Philadelphia culture food scene? (laughs) Well, I would recommend trying all 80 of our merchants. I know you would, but we're not going there. (laughs) If you couldn't get through that. A news group promoting selfishly. (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, I'm a big fan of Scrapple, okay? If you're not from the Philadelphia area. Explain. It's a... Pennsylvania delicacy. It's a mixed, mixture of uh, pork, sometimes made with turkey, uh, cornmeal, and spices. And the best scrapple... The mystery surprise delicacy of Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> the, be- the best scrapple is a kind that is deep fried on both sides uh, and a little bit of oil. There's nothing good for you. So that was, is, the, that was the disclaimer. Go it ahead. is really good. Okay, now, yeah. okay, Scrapple. And I grew up eating Scrapple, so I'm, I'm still alive. Now, let's get stereotypical here. Cheesesteak. Yeah, well, of course, people want to uh, have a cheesesteak. We have seven different merchants within the building that do So you're do not going to be lost trying to find a cheesesteak. No, yeah. absolutely not. And, of course, for the first-time visitors to Philadelphia, many people want to try a cheesesteak. Oh, they, they have to. Yeah. Even the people who don't eat meat, you ha- you'll be forced to have a That's cheesesteak. That's right. <laughs> Baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Philadelphia, to me, of course, has a lot of history here, but there are a lot of great museums here. In fact, the last time we were here, we were broadcasting from the Museum of the American Revolution, which is an amazing new addition to this city. 
But there's another museum here I highly recommend. And you know what? It's the African American Museum right here in Philadelphia. And joining me now from that museum, James Claiborne. How are you, sir? Hey, how you doing? Okay. Now, if you go to most American cities, uh, you will now find, you, this was not true necessarily 40 years ago. Look, look what's just happened in, in Washington, D.C. with the Smithsonian Museum of African American History. Yeah. Right? You will find a museum of, of black Americans or yes. American black history. What makes this museum so special? I think what makes this museum so special, well, one, we were founded in 1976, so we're one of the first. One of the early ones. Yeah, exactly. We were the first museum to be founded by a city and founded by a municipality. I think what's exciting about AMP is the way that we look at black culture and black art and tie it to global narratives. And, you know, it's interesting because you, you you know, it's called the African American Museum, but... You're an art museum. Yeah, well, we, we're art, history, and culture. and so our Well, core, you're going to weave it in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, art uh, provides the access point for a lot of folks is what gets people in the door, what excites people. But we're always looking to tie that back to historical narratives. And so how have you done that? Uh, so we have our core exhibition, which is called Audacious Freedom. It's been up for eight years. As opposed to freedom. <laughs> <laughs> Audacious Freedom. Um, it looks you, see, at, you stole that from Obama. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, p- perhaps. Um, so we, uh, it looks at African-American life from 1776 to 1876. Now, is it national or just devoted to this region? It's devoted to this region. And so we're looking at that 100 years, and we're talking about the people who are living here, how communities organize themselves, what politics look like, what family looks like. And who were the history makers that were alive, present, and shaping this country through uh, life in Philadelphia? Now, if you look at Baltimore, of course, you end up with Frederick Douglass and a few other people that certain presidents think are still alive, but that's another story. Yeah. Uh, who's your hero here? Who's the, who's the surprise person in Philadelphia history? that comes to light. Hmm. Well, we look at a lot of history makers and part of that gallery, we have about these life-size displays. So you have Octavius Cato, you have the two reverends. Oh, stop right there. Yeah. Tell me about Octavius Cato. I'm not a historian, so I'm not going to dive deep into into that perspective, but we're looking at at those folks and thinking about them and kind of trying to tie narratives. So we're looking at the folks who started, uh, you know, the AME church and thinking about how kind of radical and revolutionary they were and tying that to to kind of radical and revolutionary life in Philadelphia or across the country or the world, kind of with present-day narratives and present-day kind of relevance. Now, you mentioned the word revolutionary because it was revolutionary at that time. Absolutely, absolutely. And then in our upper galleries, we turn to contemporary art. And so we're looking at what's happening now globally. We're showing work from Cuba. We're showing work internationally. But we're also weaving in the artists who are alive and here now uh, kind of shaping Philadelphia with their art and with their lives. You know, you mentioned Cuba, you mentioned other locations. To me, when you're looking at that art from certain periods of time, you're really looking at the art of the struggle. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, artists are speaking about what's bubbling up from community. And I think that's really uh, what's drawing people in. And people are seeing themselves and and kind of what's happening kind of presently um, reflected back. What's your biggest surprise for people who come to the museum who are not expecting to learn something that you're going to tell them that they're like, I, I had no idea. Yeah, I think it's, um, I'm really excited about our special exhibitions, the contemporary art. Um, so I think about the the way they swap over every three to six months. And we're diving into things from, you know, just last summer we looked at, or two summers ago, we looked at uh, the just social, uh, the criminal justice system and the way it affects kind of people uh, across the country. And so I think that folks are surprised to see just how rich uh, the art is and how they can dive in and learn about everything from another culture to actually um, criminal and social justice and things that kind of they feel passionate about. Well, you know, when we we talk about the numbers in this country, what's always staggering to me is how many African-Americans are incarcerated. Yeah. I mean, the population is, is over, what, two, three million. Yeah. You're talking about prison art now. Yeah. I, so, you know, uh, just when we had that show uh, up, it was called Arresting Patterns. Uh, we had a town hall that was scheduled, and it was scheduled on Saturday. And the week before is when those three gentlemen, Philando Castile, uh, I think Alton Sterling, another gentleman, were shot, right? And so the community was kind of bubbling up and kind of felt all this. And AMP created a safe place for people to come in. And there were all kind of folks there, white folks, black folks, everything in between. And really, uh, folks were able to kind of use the art Uh, for a healing and for a safe conversation. Well, the art was a tool. Yeah, the art was a tool. And it was an enabler. It was, absolutely. Do you have programs that are interactive? 
Um, absolutely. I think everything's kind of interactive within our museum. I think it's a cultural thing. Um, just last night, we showed a great film called Looking for Langston. And instead of having kind of a traditional panel where people sit down and talk at the audience, we actually brought an expert in and facilitated a community conversation. And so I think folks are always kind of wanting to respond to the work. And so I think it's our job to kind of create that forum and to facilitate that. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. The Sofitel here, great location, walking distance to the Kimmel Center, uh, the Rodin Museum, but a lot more stuff to talk about because my next guest knows all about that and more. She's the author of 100 Things to Do in Philadelphia Before You Die, it's Irene Levy rhymes with Chevy Baker. Hi, I, hi, Peter. She made me say that. <laughs> <laughs> I love when people do what I tell them to do. Yeah. Now, nice to see you again. The last time we, we, we saw each other was from the, American, the Museum of the American Revolution. Yes, I'm delighted to be back. And yeah. I wanted to know, have you visited Reading Terminal Market on this trip yet? Well, you know I'm going right after the show. I mean, in, in fact... In fact, we've got the guy from the Reading Terminal on the show today because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm addicted, you know. I know you are. I know. And it, with good reason. I know. I'm, I'm on a Scrapple routine today. I'm, I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm on a Scrapple mission. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about your book because we didn't get to 100 things the last time. We only got to a couple of them. And plus, you have another book coming out in the fall, right? I do. It's all about the stories behind Philadelphia restaurants. Cool. The untold stories. The untold stories. It's about how two chocolatiers got engaged, places where there were bungled mob hits, um, a place See, I only want to go to the places where they had bungled mob hits. Absolutely. You know? I mean, enough of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. I think they've overplayed that one in Chicago. I just want to go to the bungled locations. Absolutely. That's, yeah. that's why. <laughs> that's what's included. Can you tell me where that location is? Sure. It was Halloween night, 1987. A man walked in with a mask and a trick-or-treat bag. Of course, as you would on Halloween. Of yeah. course. Pulled out a machine gun, pointed it at little Nicky Scarfo. Shot him several times. Uh, fortunately, little Nicky survived. The gunman ran out. Um, little Nicky ended up in prison for 30 years. But the restaurant, here's the good news, the restaurant also survived. A hundred years later, it's still around serving great traditional Italian cuisine. So whatever you do, don't sit in the corner table and order the Little Nicky special. <laughs> well, Little Nicky did okay. <laughs> Till the police caught him. But his cuisine has somewhat suffered. He's in prison. Right. Well, he, I, I'm assuming since then he's probably left us. But the point is, that was a bungled location. Yes, it was. And okay, there's, and, and the name of the restaurant? Uh, Dante and Luigi's. Of course it is. Okay. And what do you order there? Oh, definitely red gravy, which is what Philadelphians call um, red sauce. Okay. Anything with red gravy. Right. A la Nikki. Ugh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's right. All right. It's the, the, the red sauce with a taste of gunpowder. A little, little, <laughs> little effervescent. Okay, fine. Now, moving right along, going back to your, your other book, right? Yes. We didn't cover that much ground the last time. So you know, the food scene here is unbelievable. The, the museum scene here is unbelievable, right? Yes. What's your, what's your new favorite? What's your, what's your flavor of the month now? Uh, one of the things that I love to do is take mural arts tours. Yeah. When you walk around Philadelphia, you're, you'll see the murals everywhere. Um, they're like wonderful surprises on the sides of buildings um, and walls all over town. On the mural arts tours, you go into different neighborhoods. You learn the meaning behind the, t the murals, why they're there, and how they really bring communities together. Well, coming up later in the show, we've got Shira Walensky, who's the muralist of Philadelphia, coming on. I mean, what a great story she has to tell. So Definitely. stick around for that. But you can actually take the tours, which is You great. can take the tours. Cool. Now let's go back to food, other than red sauce. Okay. 
So there, uh, John and Kira are two Philadelphia chocolatiers. Oh, these are the guys who got engaged? Well, shh. Let oh. me tell you the story. Oh, okay, fine. They're two Philadelphia chocolatiers, and the first month they opened, they were on the cover of Gourmet Magazine for the Valentine's Day issue. And the editor called and said, hey, are you, to John, are you guys married? And John said, uh, no, but leave it in the story. And when the first issue came out, he handed it across the table to Kira with a diamond ring taped inside. Wow. If she had said no, the magazine would have been incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he was he pretty sure. Yeah, he, by that who, time, he got it wrong. Who wouldn't marry a chocolatier? All right. Irene Levy rhymes with Chevy Baker, the author of 100 Things to Do in Philadelphia Before You Die, and the upcoming... Eats and Eater, Unique Eats and Eateries of Philadelphia coming out this fall. Right. How to tape a diamond ring inside an issue of Gourmet Magazine and hope for the best. Does that sort of work for you? Works for me. Captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Let your motor run and you know, I mentioned earlier in the show that this hotel is walking distance to the Kimmel Center. And if you've been lucky, as I have to attend some of their some of their functions, it's well worth the visit. Joining me now is the producing artistic director. I'll say that three times fast for the Kimmel Center for the Performing Arts. Jay Wall, how are you, man? Good morning. I'm great. Yeah, I mean, what a cool place that is because I'm always surprised. There's no two performances are ever repeated. Everything is different. Your variety is what amazes me. Uh, well, we try to serve the broad and diverse communities of our city so that at any one time we have uh, you know, nine different venues with eight resident companies serving everything from gospel to comedy to speakers to the best orchestra in the world. Okay, you just blown me away. Eight resident companies. Yes, sir. Name them. Uh, Opera Philadelphia, Philadelphia Chamber Music Society, the Philly Pops, the Philadelphia Orchestra, Pennsylvania Ballet, Curtis Institute of Music, uh, Philadenko, the Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia. And you went absolutely nothing for that, but that was pretty good. <laughs> that was pretty good. Well, we're proud of them. I mean, uh, where else in the city can you get world-class art of all kinds at any any day of the week? Uh, but what we have upcoming that I want to talk about is the yeah. Philadelphia International Festival of the Arts, which is an opportunity for us to sort of explode across the city with really unusual uh, and really special interactive art. Uh, I like to say that. And of course, when you say special interactive art, you can define that any way you want. Well, I can. But in this case, we think of the work as uh, not having any distance between the artist uh, and the audience and really thinking about ways to build community through stories and collective experience. Well, to me, a successful museum or a successful performance is one that is, first of all, great storytelling. And number two, it's interactive. You, you, can, you can get involved. Yes, uh, yeah, we want you to have a new experience. We want to change the way you're thinking, change your state of mind, uh, allow you to have an opportunity with your date or your grandchild or your your friend uh, that's meaningful, that gives you uh, an opportunity to learn something about each other and develop empathy for your neighbor. Now, you've been here for over 25 years now. I have been in Philly a while. But you're originally, what, Florida? Well, I spent time as a young person in Florida, but I moved here in high school and went to college here, and uh, I got my Phillies hat on. I feel like a Philly guy. Just as long as you don't have a Sixer hat on. I don't have a Sixers hat on. You know, I've gone to a couple of Sixer games. They're sad. <laughs> well, you know, we have the best performing arts and cultural community in this city. Here's what you do. I move the, no, <laughs> move the Sixers to the Kimmel Center, call it a performance, and, and you'll be okay. I'm game. Let's do it. <laughs> He's game. Nice pun. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, I, I watched a couple of games there. Oh, my God. Well, what you said you came to the Kimmel Center. I'm curious what you saw. Oh, my God. I'm trying to think. I'm thinking it could have been, tell me from, it could have been Bonnie Raitt. Yes, we've had Am her. I right? Yes. Then it was Bonnie Raitt. Wow. Yeah. That's a good thing to see. And by the way, she's always great to see. I mean, get her to sing Angel from Montgomery. I'm there every night. Amen. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. But if you come back in June, uh, we're going to have a show called Doggy Hamlet, which features- Called what? Doggy Hamlet, which features five Doggies? dancers. Doggies? <laughs> five dancers, three dogs, and 30 sheep. Come on. You had me at dogs, but explain the sheep, please, because that could be a crime. So that's part of our festival. We are going to be in Fairmount Park. Uh, the audience sits in a big circle on hay bales, and the sheep and the dancers enter the space, and the dogs herd them. Uh, and it's a piece about our community, how we work together. Wait uh, a second. Stop right now. 
You're telling me that I get to buy a ticket, go to the Kimmel Center, and watch sheep being herded? Well, this project is produced by the Kimmel Center, not actually at the Kimmel Center. Maybe I, I think it might be produced by the Kibble Center. <laughs> well, yes. Kibbles and bits. Okay. <laughs> But do the sheep eat that? The dogs no, do. the dogs do. That's how they, so that's they herd it. Sheep eat grass uh, in the park. But that's one of the kinds of ways which we think about when I said yeah. special and unusual art. The whole festival this year is about how we come together, how we build community and tell our stories. Uh, so to be in a city like Philadelphia, which is, you know, fifth largest city in the country, surrounded by farmland and rural environments and a variety of communities. You have a lot to draw from. Well, we thought we would take the art into a rural slash urban environment. So you're sitting on a hay bale in Fairmount Park, which is the largest city park in the country. Uh, and you're with the dancers and the sheep, but you're looking at the city skyline and you're you're sort of thinking about what is the relationship between the farm communities who support the city and the people who live here and the people here. And so the whole festival experience really is meant to draw new connections about how we live together. Well, listen, you ask, you ask kids where food comes from, they tell you the store, not good. Not good, but... Well, we're not really going to talk about food here, but yes. But it's a chain. It's the chain. That's right. That's right. There's a whole farm to table movement and how we're connected to each other. Now, you've been at the Kimmel Center since, what, 2011. So, uh, yeah. So in that five or six or seven year period, for those of us who can do math, what's been the most surprising performance you've had there? Uh, well, the most surprising performance was a time we closed down the street just in front of the building. This is also part of the festival. And we raised a crane where we had 12 uh, French percussionists dangling 200 feet in the air. Uh, uh, the world's largest triangle. <laughs> well, bells. Yeah. and yeah. yeah. And they performed in front of 200,000 people. Wow. Uh, and it was one of those moments where the crane went in the air and the spotlight hit the artists and the whole city gasped. And I cried because it was and it one of those magic moments. And it worked. And it worked. And yeah. so for this festival in June, we've invited them back. Uh, we're doing a world premiere project with that company. I've commissioned them to create something new. Are you bringing the crane back? We are. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to be on the banks of the Schuylkill River, which is another, of course, Philly landmark. Uh, and we're going to do uh, an aerial dance party where you are dancing with your friends in a history of social dance, and the musicians are above your head on a chandelier covered in crystals and lights. Uh, and they'll be playing, they'll start with, you know, so waltzes. Be, so let's stop right now. So before going to this performance, please don't drop any acid. You don't need to. You don't need to. It's going to be a spectacular, like, uplifting experience. And no, with all puns intended. With all puns intended. Uh, on the river, looking up in the sky, a band above your head, all your friends and family around you, you're dancing on the banks of the river. Do, uh, do, do the musicians have to sign a waiver? Uh, well, they might wave at you, but uh, no, this is a troupe from France that specializes in large-scale aerial work, and it's like nothing you've ever seen. And to be able to present a world premiere by a major company like this yeah. uh, really is the kind of things that Philadelphia can do. Um, you know, we're the best art city in the world. And, so uh, basically, you break the fourth wall all the time. That we, There is no fourth wall in our festival. Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, that's how we think about it. So uh, another project we're doing is a 24-hour history uh, we'll call it a 24-decade history of popular music. There's this artist, Taylor Mack, who is doing a 24-hour show, and he's taking he's every... performing straight for 24 hours? Uh, we're doing it in two 12-hour segments. And every hour of the show, he takes on a different decade of American history. So we start in 1776 with the beginning of the show, which, of course, American history starts here in Philadelphia. And we, each hour of the show, we tell the story of a decade of American history using popular music of the time. So the first hour of the show is 1776 to 1786, etc. So it's not just how many songs, it's how many different instruments. Uh, there's a 24-piece orchestra, and every hour of the show, an orchestra member leaves uh, until Taylor <laughs> is alone on stage. The costumes are like parade floats. They're deeply imaginative and exorbitantly beautiful. Uh, and we bring and in lots of communities. And for 24 hours. Yes, sir. And we tell the whole story of America, told from the point of view of people who might have been systematically left out of that storytelling. And so we use... Uh, popular music, uh, which of course is an objective question, but we use popular music from variety communities to tell stories about how those communities co contributed to American history. Or how they didn't, how they were excluded. And how they've been excluded. And so we segregate the audience during civil rights. We uh, we draft the audience to World War One, and all the men in the audience from 18 to 40 have to come down to the stage and stand in the trenches with the performers. Uh, it's highly interactive. We blindfold the audience at one point. People, We go to the gay junior prom and we dance together. Um, all sorts of Just moments. Just as long as the sheep don't come out. The sheep are not part of that show. Okay. But it's you really know what? Uh, I'm game for anything. Uh, <laughs> but that's so from an aerial performance on the yeah. banks of the river, from a, a sheep, uh, rural, urban kind of mesmerizing dance work to the telling of the story of American history from Philadelphia to the present. I mean, from the origins in Philadelphia when we wrote the Constitution to the I mean, present. I mean, talk about cutting edge. You guys are doing great stuff. That's, that's our festival, which is uh, the first week of June, June 1st through the 10th. Going the wrong way! Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? 
Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru. Philadelphia to me is, is I mean, I grew up in Manhattan and New York, city of neighborhoods, love neighborhoods, Philadelphia, neighborhoods, all, the, all over the place. And last night, if truth be told, uh, I went to one of those great neighborhood restaurants. It's been around for about five years. And it's one of those BYO places. Um, they don't have a liquor license, so everybody shows up with their, their paper bag with their bottle of wine. Uh, but they're not, coming, they're not coming there for the wine because <clears throat> they could drink their wine anywhere. They're coming there literally for the food. And the name of the restaurant is Nord, N-O-O-R-D. And the owner and the chef, John Carl Lockman, is with me now. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. You have a voice for radio. <laughs> I've been told that. <laughs> <laughs> Why that? First of all, tell me the neighborhood. Uh, the neighborhood is called East Pass Junk. It's uh, for when I was growing up in southwest Philly, it was... And a you're place. a Philadelphia native. I am, yes. Yeah. I'm a returnee. Um, it was the kind of place where people went for uh, shoes and uh, school uniforms and cheese and things like that. It's slowly morphed into a bit of a dining destination. Yeah, because before that it was like body shops and... Yeah. And, right. And they're still there, too. Which well, I, I passed them on the way last night. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yes. But the cool thing is, you're not a big restaurant. Nope. But you got a great menu. Oh, thank you. But it's all locally sourced. It is. We do the best. To, we try to do that as often as we can. What you, I mean, what you had on the menu last night, I mean, everything that I ordered last night was something I'd never had before. So that gives me a good indication of, like, I'm, I'm trying something new, but it's really good. Number one, you had, should I start with a dessert? No, I shouldn't start sure. with a dessert. No. I'm okay. Do, no, but you had what I thought was, you had the Brussels sprouts, and I hate Brussels sprouts, but I ordered them, and I ate them all. Why? Oh, I was watching you to be sure that you did. So uh, I think, well, I think people grow up eating Brussels sprouts that have been overcooked. When they see them, uh, that they're not bright, glowing green the way they would be boiled by their mother or my mother. Uh, We roast them. Although I must tell you, my mother was not a good cook. Nor was mine. And she would serve me lima beans, okay? Oh. Oh, yeah, we're getting there. And the lime, and she, every time she served me the lima beans, she'd say, you have to eat all of this because of all the starving children in India, right? That was her line. And after about a year of this, I realized I understood why the kids in India were starving, because they hated lima beans. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but, but, but now you understand why I hated Brussels sprouts, because she had the same problem. But what did you do with them? What did oh, you do with them? We treat them like little baby cabbages, basically. But we we cut them in half. We roast them real simply in a little bit of oil with caraway seeds. Uh, we served them on some creme fraiche with a little more caraway, and we made a raisin guest streak, a golden raisin guest streak, on top of that. So, so they're actually sweet. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're yes. actually sweet. Amazing. Thank you. And that was followed by something I'd never seen before: a salmon bisque with the salmon in it. Yes. So that's a traditional dish from Northern Europe. It's actually a Finnish dish. Mostly our food is, is from the Netherlands, but uh, this is called lohikaito, and it's um, a traditional salmon chowder. We just happened to put some salmon on top of it. So it's a chunky potato chowder with leeks and coriander, some smoked salmon that we smoke in-house with some uh, fruit wood. By the way, you say you smoke it in-house. Unless I'm mistaken, you have the world's smallest kitchen. Yes. And you're smoking your own stuff? Yeah, we smoke, we make our own bread, we do all our... Oh, yeah. And, yeah. I'm going to get to the bread in a second. Okay, yes. That was amazing bread. I oh, mean, I'm, 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 look, I'm not here to, to promote anything except to, to tell you, I haven't had bread like that. First of all, it was crispy and soft. It was garlicky and buttery. I mean, I could have just stayed there and, eat, and eaten the bread all night. That, that, I can't take credit for the bread, unfortunately. My sous chef or chef de cuisine, whatever we want to call him, my side guy, uh, Jonathan Yakishin, has made the bread by hand every day since we've opened. So, well, he's a doing fantastic a fantastic job. Guy. Thank you. So, and then I'm, I'm going to get to the dessert part because I'm, I'm a big fan of rice pudding. I'm a big fan of tapioca. I'm a big fan of bread pudding. And at most restaurants, wherever you go, they have bread pudding. You realize where it came from. It was the bread that they didn't get done yesterday. And it's like they just throw something in there and put some honey in there. Your bread pudding was a pear and cranberry bread pudding. Yeah, yeah. So we do it with fresh brioche, and we also do it with um, uh, cold custard rather than warm custard. So it doesn't break down the bread as much. So the great thing about that is you can throw in any fruit you want to. And, uh, you know, we bake it slow and 
take it out almost be- before it's almost finished, so it keeps it kind of soft and not dry. So my lucky night was you threw in the pear last night. Yes, there was, a, there was and cranberries. <laughs> <laughs> but you make it with any kind of fruit? We do. You can do anything you want to. We make savory versions of it, too, sometimes with bacon or root vegetables, things like that. Wow. How often do you change the menu? Often. We, uh, it depends on the season. You know, in the summertime, because the season changes so quickly here in the mid-Atlantic, uh, we change it maybe every couple weeks. Uh, but we have some standards that we keep on the menu. In the, win- in the winter, we change it not so often. If we happen to have a special that everybody reacts positively to, we move something off the menu and put the special All right. On. I ask this of every chef, so you're no exception. What's the one thing you put on your menu that you thought everybody's going to love this and it totally tanked? And then, wait, wait. And then, conversely, what's the one thing you say, okay, I guess I'll put this on, but who's going to order this? And you can't keep it in, in stock because people go crazy. Yeah, on our, on our normal, when we first opened, we had a little uh, idea that we may be a rotisserie place. So we had a, a rotisserie chicken uh, machine in there, for lack of a better term, because we thought maybe some of the Northern European words would be a little weird for people. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. Hey, Prime members, Peter Greenberg here. You can listen to Ion Travel ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. And you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta Sky Miles Business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.